Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I will now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, New Trends in the Treatment of Thyroid Cancer. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I specifically want to call out um, some of the thyroid organizations that are involved in this program today. Um, I want to call out to the Thyca, Thyroid Cancer Survivors Association, and Light of Life Foundation, um, both of whom specifically focus on thyroid cancer. The other organizations do have information about thyroid cancer as well, but these, and also, I'm sorry, the American uh, Thyroid Association as well. So, um, so we have um, three organizations that really are specific to, th to thyroid cancer. And um, at the end of the program, you'll all be getting an evaluation. In that evaluation, it's an evaluation, but it also you'll be getting all the resources that we mentioned during the call. So these organizations particularly will be prominently displayed for you to, to have access to um, if you have any, any further questions or things like that that you'd like to, more information about thyroid cancer. They're great resources. Now, there are many of you on the call today. You come from all over the United States. You come from both urban, rural, and suburban areas, so really all over the United States, just lots of you. And um, we also have international particip participants from Brunei, Canada, India, Lebanon, Malaysia, and Venezuela, so really a bit of a global call as well, and uh, we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. Today's program is supported by ISI Inc. and the Dianapoli Fund, and we thank them for their support of the program. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Cracchiolo, and Dr. Cracchiolo is Assistant Attending Surgeon, Head and Neck Service, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Assistant Professor of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Cracchiolo will be addressing overview of thyroid cancer, including diagnosis and staging, treatment options and clinical trials, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cracchiolo. Oh, thank you so much, Carolyn, for having me. And I'm excited to discuss the diagnosis and treatment of thyroid cancer from a surgeon's point of view. I would start by saying that thyroid cancer is one of the most treatable cancers in the head and neck. And so when I see a patient with thyroid cancer in my clinic, we have a lot of options and we review um, all of the options and there's often uh, very good outcomes associated with this cancer diagnosis. Thyroid cancer is common. There's about 50,000 new cases diagnosed every year. It's more common in women than men. The excellent prognosis of thyroid cancer is reflected in our staging system. And so, for example, what I often will tell people because part of our staging system reflects this is that if you're under 55 years old, almost all patients are stage one unless the cancer has traveled outside the head and neck, and this is extremely rare. The sizing, the uh, staging system is really based on three main things. First is the tumor size, so how big is the tumor in the thyroid gland? 
we consider that as the T stage. We also consider is the tumor within the thyroid gland or does it extend outside the thyroid gland? This is called extrathyroidal extension and that's also a part of our staging system. We also look at lymph nodes and where they're located in the neck. And so lymph nodes that are close to the thyroid are considered um, N1 disease, where lymph nodes that have traveled outside the, uh, the central neck compartment are considered uh, N1B lymph nodes. And finally, we also consider if the cancer has traveled outside the head and neck, and this is considered metastatic cancer, which is uncommon in thyroid cancer. The state, the, there are really three ways that people come to my office with a thyroid cancer found. And this usually begins with a thyroid nodule being identified. So what's a thyroid nodule? A thyroid nodule is a mass within the thyroid. Now this could be cancer or it could be benign. And in fact, most of them are benign. Some of them are cancer. So how are these typically found? Well, one of the most common ways that I find one of these in my office is that it's an incidental finding. What do I mean by that? Someone is having a test for something else. For example, you were in a car accident and a CT scan was performed because of neck pain and a thyroid nodule is identified. Or carotid ultrasound was done uh, and a thyroid nodule is found. And so these are often the reason why we see a thyroid nodule and a common re reason for presentation. Another possibility is that the person noticed something. So they either notice a mass in the neck or they're at the doctor's office and when they were palpating their neck, they noticed something in the thyroid uh, that uh, was enlarged. And then a final uh, way that people present, and this is very uncommon, but occasionally I see it, is a change in the voice, like hoarseness, um, or difficulty swallowing. And this is fairly um, uncommon. And very, uh, again, uncommon but occasional is someone will notice a neck mass at the side of the neck, and a, a biopsy will suggest that this is thyroid cancer. And so when a thyroid nodule is found, either on a scan incidentally, palpated, the first thing that we typically do is an ultrasound. Ultrasound is the best way to look at the thyroid and to assess for nodules. It's important for the thyroid to be assessed as well as the lymph nodes in the neck. So this is often the first step. Once the thyroid ultrasound has been done, we look at the characteristics of the ultrasound. And we have very clear guidelines on what is high suspicious or a intermediate or low suspicion nodule. And based on that is how we decide to biopsy things. So our uh, American thyroid guidelines tell uh, us as physicians that we should not biopsy nodules under one centimeter. So that's the first pass. If the nodule is less than one centimeter, it doesn't need to be biopsied. I typically recommend that we take a look at that again with an ultrasound in uh, six months to a year. However, if the nodule is of high suspicion and it's greater than one centimeter, we recommend a biopsy. For intermediate suspicious nodules, at 1.5 centimeters, we recommend a biopsy. And when someone has a, a nodule that says spongiform, which basically is a, the ultrasonographer's way of telling me very low risk, we typically won't biopsy these if they're um, uh, under two centimeters. And so we first use the ultrasound to do the biopsy. Who does the biopsies? Well, this can be done by the surgeon, it can be done by a cytologist in some settings, and it can be done by a radiologist in some settings. And so this is taking cells out of the thyroid and identifying if this is cancer or not. When the cells come back, they are rated. They're rated from one to six. It's called the Bethesda criteria, and this helps us to um, 
to uh, decide next steps. One means, Bethesda 1, that there's not enough cells to make the diagnosis. Two is a benign nodule. Three, four, five is uh, an intermediate area where we're not sure if the nodule is cancer or not. And six is a Bethesda 6, and it's a diagnosis of cancer. So for those intermediate groups, three, four, five, that can be there a 15% chance risk, 40% chance risk, or 75% chance risk of cancer. In the ones that are 75%, I often will recommend a thyroidectomy uh, for diagnosis. However, in those intermediate risks, we have some really new exciting tests in the molecular biology field. What we can do with these nodules is we actually look at the cells, we look at the molecular makeup of these cells, and they're able to tell us about what the percentage is of this being a cancer. And that can either increase or decrease the risk, and this is very helpful when patients are trying to make decisions about next steps. And so we often will uh, use this to help in decision-making. So let's go into the patients that are a Bethesda 6 and we have a diagnosis of cancer. Well, there are four main types of thyroid cancer. Papillary thyroid cancer, which is the most common and very treatable. Follicular carcinoma. The important thing to remember about follicular carcinoma is that this is a nodule within the thyroid, and in order to make the diagnosis for these cancer, the pathologist needs to be able to look at the nodule, but also the way that it interacts with the thyroid, and so invasion is what they look at for follicular cancers. Medullary thyroid cancers, which is uncommon, often hereditary, and anaplastic thyroid cancer, which is extremely rare um, and uh, is, is often um, not seen, however, does occasionally happen. And so for today, we'll be focusing on the differentiated thyroid cancers, which is the papillary thyroid cancers, and the follicular carcinomas. And so once someone has a diagnosis of a thyroid cancer, the most uh, common recommendation for both treatment and diagnosis, just to confirm the diagnosis and the cytology, is surgery. And so when I see a thyroid cancer, I discuss all options. I'd start by saying that there, while surgery is the mainstay of treatment, there are some patients, and this is uh, now supported in our guidelines, that have very small tumors, low-risk small tumors, so less than one centimeter, patients that are of older age, and a location of the tumor uh, is, is the tumor is in a location in the thyroid, thyroid, which is not a dangerous location, there are some patients that can be managed with close active surveillance, meaning watching closely with thyroid ultrasounds every six months and looking to see if there is any growth of the thyroid nodule, we usually say three millimeters, and then that would prompt surgery. And so for a person that may be of an older age, may not be a good candidate for surgery, or even a younger person that might need to be completing school, active surveillance is an option for small tumors in specific locations in the certain patient population in a very motivated patient. And so I always talk about that with my patients when I see them with thyroid cancer. Certainly, surgery is the most common recommendation, and the question becomes, how much surgery do we need to do? And so the first thing that I look at is I go back to that ultrasound that helped me with the diagnosis. And so I look at that ultrasound, and I ask, first off, if the thyroid cancer is in the thyroid lobe, the right thyroid lobe, potentially, if that's where it's isolated to, the patient may only need a thyroid lobectomy, meaning taking out only half the thyroid and leaving the other half behind. 
I look at a few things when I make this decision. One, is there anything in the contralateral lobe or in the other side of the thyroid? If there's no nodules and it's a total, totally normal thyroid gland, then often we can leave half of the thyroid. Um, I look at for lymph nodes because if there's any lymph nodes in the area that look like thyroid cancer, and this is biopsy proven, then a total thyroidectomy is needed. And I also consider the location of the nodule. And so for many patients that I see with a, uh, a thyroid cancer that's less than four centimeters in one lobe of the thyroid that is um, without any lymph nodes, I will often recommend a lobectomy. There's a lot of benefits, one being that you have some of your own thyroid, and that can be very helpful to have some endogenous or some of your own thyroid and only needing a replacement meeting total rather than needing total thyroid replacement. Um, there is no risk of hypocalcemia, and... Um, and there's uh, significant benefits. However, total thyroidectomy is also an option, and if there are lymph nodes present, we also remove those at the time of surgery. And so as I mentioned before, this is a very curable cancer. Um, and so therefore, we need to consider the quality of life after being treated for this. Most of the quality of life complaints um, after this particular uh, treatment can include um, low calcium, sometimes voice changes, but this is uncommon and usually related to the surgery. Some longer-term uh, quality of life changes can really be related to not having your own thyroid hormone and needing to take a medication every day. And so sometimes people will ask, will talk about fatigue, weight gain, simply not feeling like yourself. While this is uncommon, it often um, can have a significant uh, impact on quality of life. So we worked very closely with our endocrinologists in order to help manage the thyroid hormone levels uh, and therefore making sure we get you at the right level so that you feel just like you did before the treatment. And so I'm going to turn it back over to Carolyn, and thank you again for having the opportunity to talk to you about this. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Carpiello. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful just overview of thyroid cancer and really its treatment and um, just really a, a very detailed explanation of really how decisions are made about the treatment. So thank you so much, and, um, and the surgery as well, and thank you. Um, and um, I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowitz. And Dr. Misikowitz is Associate Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, Assistant Professor, Otolaryngology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai Hospital. And Dr. Misikowitz is going to be addressing novel approaches to treat refractory thyroid cancer, managing treatment side effects and pain, and communicating with your healthcare team. And he probably will also say something about clinical trials as well. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mistikowitz. Uh, <clears throat> so good morning, everybody. It's an absolute pleasure to be in this extensive panel of experts and being able to speak and talk about uh, um, recent advances in thyroid cancer. So um, I'm going to be covering the um, iodine refractory, but also I'm going to discuss a little bit about medullary thyroid cancer, anaplastic thyroid cancer, and recent advances, how those can be treated. And then obviously at the end, I'm going to be open to questions. So uh, by first, I'm going to say uh, something that obviously was mentioned before, that uh, in terms of the treatment, how we approach them, there are three types of cancer when we're talking about thyroid cancer. So the first one is anaplastic, the second is medullary thyroid cancer, and the third one is differentiated thyroid cancer. There is like a large group of different cancers that kind of belongs to this group. So if your cancer is called tall cell or hurtle cell or papillary follicular, so it probably belongs to this group of cancers. 
So starting with, with anaplastic thyroid, so uh, I have to say that anaplastic thyroid was one of the most aggressive cancer, and it was a devastating news uh, to the patient. It was very uh, disappointing news even for, for the doctors when we uh, had this kind of uh, situation because there were not so many treatments that we could offer. So uh, obviously uh, it was it was very disappointing. So what's happening actually in the uh, anaplastic thyroid cancer is that we have some new treatments that uh, can be introduced, and some of them are actually FDA approved, and some of them are still considered experimental. So <clears throat> something that, and I'm going to be going through this talk and using some metaphors to kind of explain our approach. So what we know about anaplastic thyroid cancer, this anaplastic thyroid cancer has some mutations carry some mutation. Now, what is this mutation? So basically, there is some kind of a damage of the genetic code, and what are the implications of this? And the metaphor I'm going to use is sort of like a lock and the key. So when you can imagine having a cancer that has a lock, and I have a key, and this key is a tablet, a medication that I can use. So in order for the strategy to be successful, A, the cancer must have the lock, because I can be standing with the key all day long and trying to match it. If, if there is no lock, I'm not going to be able to use it. And it has to be a perfect match, because because obviously if it's going to be incorrect match and the same analogy with the lock and the key, I can be jiggle of the key all day long and it's going to do nothing. So what we know about anaplastic thyroid cancer is that sometimes it can have what is called a BRAF mutation. So BRAF mutation is a um, damage of the genetic code and obviously if, you, if the patient has it, it's kind of driving the cancer to become aggressive. But luckily, we have medications. So we call them BRAF and MEK inhibitors. So BRAF mutation with the BRAF inhibitor. If we're going to use them, there is a pretty good chance that we're going to be able to shrink this cancer and make people live longer. But again, in order to make such a diagnosis, A, you have to know that you have anaplastic um, thyroid cancer. And second, the test that has to be performed is a genetic test. And this is something that is um, widely used now in, in the world of oncology. But eventually, if you have your doctor, please ask them, obviously, if such a test was done because it's going to dramatically change the diagnosis and, you know, potentially outcome. There is something new that obviously we try to use in anaplastic thyroid cancer, something called immunotherapy. Probably you heard about immunotherapy from other cancers, and, um, and other cancers immunotherapy is uh, FDA approved, and anaplastic thyroid is not yet. So we're going to see, we have to learn, and we have to find out this kind of strategy is going to work. We have some case reports and case series, some of them are very encouraging. And immunotherapy, basically what it is, we're stimulating your own immune system, and we're telling your own body to fight with the cancer. Those medications are given many times intravenously, you have to go to the clinic, but again, they are not FDA-approved, but they are available as an um, option in clinical trial, and I strongly encourage you to do so because anaplastic thyroid cancers are unfortunately very, uh, very rare, so we don't see it um, uh, often in our offices. And in order to move on and make any kind of changes uh, how we treat those patients, we need your participation. We have to learn. We have to use those new medications, but at the same time, it's giving you the access to those promising medicines that obviously... Uh, they look uh, very promising, the, the results are encouraging, so you can benefit and you can help other patients. So going back to immunotherapy, it is used in form of the clinical trial. Sometimes it's used in combination with the BRAF inhibitors and others, but the only way to get access to them, obviously, is through clinical trials. So this is first. This is anaplastic thyroid cancer. Then let's move to medullary thyroid cancer. That is not very common, but we still see those patients. And medullary thyroid cancer sometimes can be passed, you know, from parents to kids, so it can be genetically inherited, but sometimes it's sporadic, it just happens. 
So we do have treatments for medullary thyroid cancer. So the first one, obviously, surgery, as was covered previously. But if the surgery is not successful or the cancer comes back and unfortunately presents with distant metastases, then we have some strategies. And some of them are FDA-approved. We have two medications that are currently approved. We call them targeted therapy, or TKI. And another metaphor that I like to use, because we have many TKIs, and sometimes patients are asking, what is the difference between drug versus A, drug versus B, and we still call them um, targeted therapy. And again, the other metaphor, I like to compare the, the cancer to the house. And you're trying to get inside to kind of, you know, kill the cancer. So some of those drugs can be kind of getting through the door and let's say the window on the top floor. The second can be using the basement and the uh, the, the window on the, on the side. So there are some slight differences how those medications get in inside. And that's why sometimes the mechanism is different or maybe the outcome is different, sometimes the toxicity. But it's kind of the same concept. So we have those, what is called a targeted therapy. And actually, as I mentioned, we have two. There are many others that are being tested, and they kind of have the same similarities. They usually, if those are oral agents. We call them TKIs. And obviously, again, we learnings in some of them. Obviously, um, they have less side effects. Some of them, they have uh, better efficacy. But we're not going to be able to get this information and use it in a clinical practice uh, without your participation. So, and again, I'm going to encourage you. And there is a second way that we can kind of get into the cancer. As I mentioned, this you know, breaking through the door and the window, there is more sophisticated way, as I previously kind of mentioned, the lock and the key. And what we're learning about the uh, medullary thyroid cancer, there is a mutation called rat mutation that is almost, almost guaranteed that the patient, they have it. Some of them can be sporadic. Some of them can be germline, meaning inherited from your parents. But instead of kind of using the rough method of getting into the cancer, you can just get through the door. But again, we need the pill. And actually, Recently, there are two drugs that are very promising. We call them BRET inhibitors. So one is called Loxo-292, and the other one is called Blue-67. They have those kind of the funny names because they're not commercially available. They're only available in the form of the clinical trial, but they look very promising. A, these are oral agents. B, they do work. And C, they don't have as many side effects, so obviously it looks very promising. But even if I, as a doctor, I want to treat my patients with those medications, I cannot because they're not commercially available. I can only treat them through the form of the clinical trial. So again, this is an excellent option for you to get the cutting-edge treatment, get the benefit from this, and then at the same time help other people. So as an example, so Loxo was presented at ASCO 2018, and Blue 67 was presented at the ASCO 2019. So those are very, very recent drugs, but obviously we still have to wait for approvals because they have to be tested on the larger number of patients. So this is medullary thyroid cancer. And let's move to the, the most common cancer, and probably majority of the audience probably are interested in this type of cancer. So differentiated thyroid cancer is the, the cancer that many times we use iodine. And I'm not going to be covering the iodine because as oncologists, we always treat a patient that kind of failed the iodine. So we're kind of getting the patients after the iodine was tested or was you know, used, and unfortunately, the cancer still is present, and obviously we have to use some other strategies. But even kind of bridging between iodine and the iodine refractory, some of the agents that we use and the iodine refractory, we're trying to test them and kind of uh, give them 
uh, and still considering the, giving the iodine in combination of those. So because we many times we say the iodine is not going to work anymore. So what we can do, what are the strategies that we can use to make the cancer that was not sensitive to iodine, we can make it sensitive again. And there are some strategies that we try to use, and some of them are with TKIs, as I mentioned, uh, some of them are with uh, um, BRAF mutation inhibitors, and some of them are with immunotherapy. So we're trying to combine those two strategies and kind of trying to find out if the iodine can be used again. So this is the one strategy. But what about if the doctor told you that you have the iodine refractory cancer, meaning that the iodine was tried and unfortunately didn't work successfully, and you kind of have a cancer that can, uh, for which you cannot treat uh, or use the iodine anymore. So at that time, probably you're going to see me or somebody like me, medical oncologist. And there are a few different treatments that we can use. Some of them are FDA-approved, so we have two TKIs, as I mentioned before. Those are the pills that we can use, and they're pretty, pretty um, effective. Unfortunately, some of them have some side effects, but can be easily addressed. So even though you're going to read about some of them, and they're going to have the long list of side effects, and some of them can be decreased level of energy, poor appetite, muscle pain, diarrhea, upset stomach. Many times when we store those medicines, I tell my patient, these are pills. And actually, these are capsules, and they come in the form of, you know, few capsules, many times three. We can always try to dose-reduce you. So meaning if you're starting the high dose, and unfortunately it's too toxic, we can always go down. And many times, even when you're going to go down on the dose, it's still effective. So I, I always tell my patients, even though I'm giving you this high dose, which is appropriate dose, please don't be discouraged. You're going to come back, and it's going to, we're going to address it. We're going to have to kind of find the balance between how you feel and if it's still effective for your cancer. So those are the FDA-approved FDA strategies. But obviously, uh, we want to look beyond this. There is another one that is, was not designed primarily for the thyroid cancer per se, but there is another drug called Entrac inhibitor. So again, the same strategy that I mentioned, lock and the key, so what we learned that in the past when we're looking at the cancer and how we were treating, if somebody had a breast cancer or lung cancer, we were treating those patients the same way. Then we were looking kind of deeper because within the lung cancer or even thyroid cancer, we realized that they look differently even though it's in the same organ. So that's why we discovered anaplastic, medullary thyroid cancer. So we said, okay, we're going to treat based on this. But now we go even deeper. We go to kind of genes. And what we realize many times, that even though it's a thyroid tissue, you can have the same mutation in the thyroid, you can have the same mutation in lung, you can have the, the same mutation in breast, or you can have the same mutation in the salivary, in salivary glands. And there is something in common that many times those cancers, if you're going to match them with the appropriate drug, mutation with the inhibitor, they're going to kind of behave the same way. So what we have, we have a new drug that has what we call it the agnostic tissue indication, meaning it doesn't matter where the cancer is coming from, but as long as you have this mutation, you can use this drug. And uh, many times those drugs are very promising, and as I mentioned this drug, it's called Vitravi, and the mutation is called Entrac. And if you're going to match mutation with this pill, uh, it's very effective, and it has minimal side effects. So it looks very promising, but at the same time, we have to realize that many times those mutations are not being guaranteed. So if you don't have this mutation, there is no point of using the NTRAC inhibitor if you don't have the NTRAC mutation. So you have to be, you know, very um, paying attention to this information. So those are the three FDA-approved strategies. And now we're getting to more and more, and obviously I want to mention clinical trials. 
because even though we're going to go to like a couple of years before, I wouldn't be talking about NTRAC inhibitor. It was just discovered recently. So there are some other mutations that are being studied. Thyroid cancer has way more mutations, and some of them can be at some point matched with the drug. So we can have the similar situation that in next year, on two years or three years, I'm going to be discussing discuss, discussing seven or ten drugs. So, but we cannot do it without your participation, and we're kind of learning this. Many times, I'm being asked a question: What is the role of immunotherapy in thyroid cancer? So immunotherapy is not FDA approved for differentiated thyroid cancer. The results are still kind of in infancy, so we don't know if it's going to work or it's not. Some of them, they look promising a little bit, some of them a little bit not, but we we need more information. We're not going to be able to learn it unless we're going to have patients like you that are going to participate in the clinical trial. So in summary, I can just tell you a story. I remember that I was at ASCO, which is the main conference in, in Chicago, and I approached one of the pharma companies saying, I'm interested in thyroid cancer. It was 10 years ago. And I, I had some proposal. I said, I have some idea how to treat the thyroid cancer. And they said, uh, I don't think so. Um, it's a good idea because there are much more important cancers that we have. And then look at the situation right now. We have so many things to talk about. So um, I'm very excited. And I think this uh, talks like this, they're kind of encouraging you guys to participate in clinical trials. And obviously, it encourages us to do research and kind of move the science forward. And we cannot do it, you know, without you. So it's extremely important to not only to educate, but also kind of spread this information to your friends and, you know, even to your doctors to educate them because without your participation, we cannot uh, kind of get better. And obviously, this is the ultimate goal. So this is my summary. I know that I said many words about your participation, but we cannot do it without you. So um, obviously, and I want to invite you to come back and uh, uh, talk about, you know, thyroid cancer and how, it, you know, it can be treated and telling your friends and if, uh, obviously, they, they have such a disease. So thank you again. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Misikowitz. That was really outstanding as well and really very informative for everybody to understand how important clinical trials are, what the research is happening right now, and how that really advances your treatment options and really uh, kind of dramatically to some extent and really so. Um, uh, th thank you so much. And um, our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden. Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian. She's with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center. Um, and Ms. Burden is going to be discussing nutrition, cons nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. And I'm going to now turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Ms. Ms. Burden. Thank you, Carolyn. Um, I'm excited to be part of today's presentation, um, addressing, <clears throat> discussing the nutritional concerns in the presence of thyroid cancer. Um, it's been talked about earlier in our um, our teleconference. Um, some of the potential side effects. And um, because it's in the head and neck region, oftentimes um, some of those side effects can interfere with how much you're able to eat or drink. Um, so it's important that you work closely with your team to discuss any side effects that you're experiencing, um, take medications as prescribed to help address those side effects. Because nutrition and hydration um, are essential um, in how you tolerate your treatment, um, how you feel during your treatment, and um, so it's imperative that you work closely with your team about any issues that you're having or challenges. 
So there might be some need to modify your diet during your treatment. Now, some patients, um, like we've heard, go on surveillance. Some patients have surgery. Some patients may have radiation. There's a, you know, it, it all depends on your ind- individual needs. And so um, side effects and potential modifications will vary from patient to patient. Some of the potential side effects um, include things like dry mouth, difficulty swallowing, fatigue, weight changes, maybe a change in taste, um, a decrease in appetite. So during the course of your treatment, um, whatever that might be, your energy needs and protein needs may change. And so your dietitian, who's part of your medical team, can work with you on understanding that, understanding your needs a little bit better. So asking for a, a consult with them is very helpful. So um, a dietitian can provide not only the calorie and protein needs, um, but discuss about hydration and fluid, um, any diet modifications, ways to help, you know, integrate some of the foods that you enjoy in the texture form that you can tolerate best. Um, Remember that even if you're overweight, a lot of people say, oh, I've got weight to lose. Weight loss is not ideal during any um, cancer treatment. It actually can um, pull away from your energy, increase your fatigue by using your muscle mass as an energy source. And that would put you at risk of falls. Um, You'd not be able to do the things you enjoy, um, increased fatigue. So weight loss is not ideal during any type of cancer therapy. Um, We can discuss that later on after you're you're past all this and and you're you're moving on. But during the treatment, it's important to to not have those changes. Um, Like I said, medications are available to help manage side effects. Um, This includes pain, discomfort. Um, Being in pain is not something that the team wants you to be in because if you're having pain with swallowing or pain with trying to eat or drink, then that's going to cause a whole other set of issues. So talking with your team about that is very important. There are um, items and suggestions that we can provide to help you with that. Um, But maintaining hydration is very important, and oftentimes that gets left off the list. We talk a lot about calories and protein, but dehydration can result in some side effects of its very own or enhanced side effects you might be experiencing, such as nausea, fatigue, make you feel dizzy and weak. Remember that fluids or anything that is liquid at room temperature, most people need between 8 and 10 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. And treatments such as radiation um, can actually increase fluid needs, so that might be something that changes during your treatment. Like I said, if you're having any trouble with swallowing or getting in what you need to eat, talk with your healthcare team. We're here to we're here to support you and help you with. Um, finding the um, right item for you um, to help with whatever side effect you're experiencing. In closing, there are several members of the healthcare team um, dedicated to patients and helping you during this time. Please reach out to them and be connected. Um, with that, I'm going to hand, that, uh, hand it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Dearden. That was really excellent, really outstanding, and lots of good tips for people. So thank you for that. Um, and always um, eating is so important and how what one eats and how, how to manage that. And dietitians are a great resource for everybody. Um, so thank you. And so I'm going to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions from all of you. We'll bring all of our speakers on board in just a minute. Um, so I just wanted to say um, just a few words. Um, cancer care is a, um, is a national nonprofit organization 
um, and so that means all of our services are free. And what those consist of, we do offer both practical and financial assistance. We have a copay foundation. And we also offer uh, supportive services, um, including uh, counseling services um, from our oncology social workers um, who kind of help you to navigate um, some of the questions and issues you may be, um, you know, dealing with. Um, we also offer a, a host of different support groups, both on the telephone and online, which many of you, because you're in all different parts of the country and there may not be a, a group in your community um, on your particular type of cancer, that thyroid cancer or on, um, just on any type of cancer, that we, we address all cancers and we also help people of all ages um, and both caregivers and people living with cancer as well. Um, so that basically there we do have so many online support groups and there's often a group that fits your need, whether you're a young person with thyroid cancer, an older person with thyroid cancer, a, a caregiver, um, a, a spouse, a partner. Um, so we have groups, and if you could just go to our website, www.cancercare.org, or um, actually um, contact our helpline, our helpline at 1-800-813-4673, and you can access all of our services in that way. Um, we also have a special program, uh, Cancer Care for Kids, um, helping children who have cancer in their families, and that can be very helpful, uh, both uh, children and teens. Uh, often people don't quite know how to talk to children and teens about there being someone in the family who has cancer, whether it be a parent, a grandparent, a sibling, an uncle, an aunt, a teacher, it just people really don't really have the language to use and aren't quite sure what to say. So we do help um, a lot of parents with that, um, and um, so that's another program we offer. So with that being said, there's a lot of different services. It's rather, and we also, of course, have these education workshops. We do quite a few of them. Um, last year, we did about 71 of them. Um, a year um, on different types of cancers, on different topics, um, so that um, you'll all be getting um, a listing of our programs that are coming up. We have quite a few coming up. So with that being said, now we want to have time for questions. So I'm going to ask um, uh, Sonia to actually bring all of our speakers on board and to actually um, uh, uh, let you know how to ask a question. And I see some questions are already coming in, so if Sonia would begin <laughs> letting people know how to ask a question. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Her line is now open. Thank you so much, Carol. This is an excellent seminar. Thank you very much. I have two questions. The first question I have is, if you have had past aggressive HER2 breast cancer, ER negative, is there a risk more for thyroid cancer because of having had radiation? And number two, um, I'd like to know, I have also a friend who's also a nurse who had Herkel. I think she said Herkel cell. I know you said it's Merkel, but I was thinking the word was Herkel cell type but not that she has the thyroid cancer. She was just on surveillance for many, for several years. And how long can that go on? I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for the questions. Actually, we are doing a program on Merkel cell carcinoma in November, so just so you know that, that's, um, I'm going to actually let our speakers address some of your questions. So for your first question, um, um, I'm going to ask. Um, I mean, Dr. I can cover it. I can try. So, okay, um, yes, Dr. Misikowitz. Yes. Sure. Uh, so uh, what it's... So, uh, 
what we do know that obviously uh, thyroid is the radiation sensitive organ, and obviously, um, you know, any extensive exposure to radiation can increase the chance of developing a cancer. Um, so, yes, but at the same time, when we're talking about radiation, radiation, many times the, the new technique that we use in oncology is called IMRT. So basically, we, it's a computerized kind of method where we're telling the computer to minimize the exposure to kind of a surrounding tissue. So knowing that the kind of, you know, breast is pretty far, maybe it's not that close from, from the thyroid, so I would imagine that the amount of the radiation or exposure to radiation is going to be minimal. So uh, I cannot imagine that it would be kind of a triggering factor. So it would have to be some kind of a high dose of prolonged exposure rather than one time that obviously uh, with the new technologies and new techniques that we use would be unlikely. Um, and the second, I don't know if it was about hurdle cell, I imagine. So this is one of the oh. subtype. I mean, I'm just guessing, um, subtype of the differentiated thyroid cancer, but it all depends on the scenario. Obviously, if, you know, your friend or the patient had a successful surgery and there is no evidence of, you know, cancer coming back, then obviously you just undergo the surveillance, and obviously it's pretty likely that you can go through life with just the surveillance. If at any point there is an evidence of recurrence that the cancer is coming back, there are two types of situations. Um, and sometimes this cancer can be treated with the radioactive iodine when it comes back. And if it does, obviously it's sensitive to radioactive iodine, then it's good. And if it's not, then obviously uh, you can undergo the strategies that you just mentioned. So it, it depends on the scenario. No matter what, the patient needs to continue surveillance. And depending how aggressive it is, if it's waking up and it's growing, then obviously the strategy is going to be different. But it is possible to go through life with no cancer kind of coming back or not causing any significant damage. I would just add to that um, very quickly, just uh, the Herthel cells that I think you're talking about, often a biopsy with an FNA will say Herthel cells. Herthel cells. It doesn't say Herthel cell cancer, but Herthel cells. And so that doesn't mean a cancer. It just might be the way that the pathologist is looking at the, the cells themselves. So those often can be observed. Excellent. Well, thank you. Excellent. Okay. Great question. Great answers. Thank you. And we have some online questions. Um, we have an online question, so let me just take, we'll try one of them. Um, so um, this one for Dr. Misikowitz. What are the sure. risks of watch and wait in a case of remote metastases in the thoracic cavity? Uh, so there are, I would say, two types of scenarios. If we're having just one isolated mass, the question is obviously if there is any other strategy that can be used. I would call them localized, meaning resection, radiation, uh, and many times this is what we do. So we kind of, you know, before kind of uh, subjecting patient to systemic treatment. Uh, the second is it's not very clear in terms of when to treat the patient. So we have this systemic treatment available, available such as a pill. We can kind of give it at any point. And actually, uh, what the FDA says, if there is any growth, meaning if there is a, if you have an iodine refractory cancer, if there is a confirmed growth, meaning that the mass is getting bigger, you can kind of justify the use of systemic treatment. Uh, but we don't have any kind of clear-cut answer when is the best time. I mean, there is some evidence even from the recent ASCO, but giving the treatment earlier rather than later obviously gives you a better benefit in, in terms of how long this treatment is going to work. But it comes at the cost of, you know, um, toxicity that you may, you know, experience from that. So I would say it has to be kind of a personal approach. I always have this kind of a dialogue with my patients. I kind of present this lesion on the screen and I kind of show them in the big picture and I kind 
kind of, if I decide to watch it, I kind of show it, you know, how different they look, if it's a kind of a continuous growth uh, and et cetera. And then obviously the decision is, you know, made if the toxicity can be justified because there are some side effects that you can have and if the patient wants to get a treatment. So uh, I, I would say that you have to have this conversation with the oncologist if this is the right moment to be treated. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Carcioli, do you want to add anything to that? I know we have a similar approach. I, I usually look at three things when I'm looking at metastatic disease, whether it be in the neck or um, the thoracic cavity. There's three important things. One is where is the uh, the metastatic focus uh, located, and if it's located in an area where growth would cause a change in quality of life, then we typically will treat. If it's in a location where a small amount of growth will not change quality of life, we typically observe. Um, I look at pedividity because sometimes tumors that are more pedavid are more aggressive, and therefore we sometimes consider that also for clinical trials, and um, we often will watch and wait, specifically if it's in an area that's not of, not of concern with a small amount of growth. Excellent. Thank you. Well, thank you both. And um, we have another question from one of our telephone participants. Um, Sonia? Thank you. And our next question comes from Pam M. Your line is now open. Thank you. And our next question comes from Pam M. Your line is now open. Hello. Hi, Pam. Do you want to take yourself off speaker, perhaps? It might be. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Can you hear me now? Yes. Excellent. And your question? I had a question. Um, I guess it's kind of a two-part question. Is can a biopsy detect follicular cancer? And if not, then how much can we be reassured if there's a negative biopsy? Thank you. Excellent question. And uh, Dr. Cracciolo, do you want to address that? Okay. So um, a negative biopsy, Bethesda 2, the uh, likelihood of having a cancer in a Bethesda 2 biopsy is less than 4%. And so that's uh, the answer to your second question. The first question is, can follicular carcinoma be diagnosed with a biopsy? No. Um, in those particular scenarios, that was the one that we needed to look at the nodule in relationship to the thyroid. So we look at two things. The pathologist will look at extracapsular extension or capsular invasion. If there's capsular invasion, that defines it as a cancer. It also looks at vascular invasion. Both of these things need to be done under the microscope and be able to look at uh, this once the tumor has been removed. And so that's our limitation in follicular carcinoma. Now, the other thing that I would mention is that the molecular testing helps us a little bit. And so molecular testing, if you have a negative molecular testing result, again, the, bio, the um, chances of it being a malignancy is less than 4%. Um, however, often molecular testing in follicular lesions, they sit in the 40 to 70% range and it doesn't give us a definitive answer. The definitive answer is usually done with a lobectomy, typically. And depending on the size of the tumor, that's what we'll often recommend. Excellent. And Dr. Misikwith, do you want to add I anything? totally agree, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, uh, so this question for... Um, I'll start with Dr. Tracciolo. Um, if a patient has a normal TSH, T3, and T4, and benign biopsy of a grade 5 nodule greater than 1.9 centimeters, what follow-up is recommended and at what frequency? And if you could answer this in a general way, of course, personal. Sure. Have to go back so to Bethesda 5 nodule, 
Yeah, Bethesda 5 nodule, I want to separate uh, thyroid function tests from thyroid nodules because um, they're different. One has to do with the biochemical um, output of the thyroid. How is it functioning? Is it producing the hormones it's supposed to produce? So that's thyroid function test. So I really have that interacting with the thyroid nodule. There are certain scenarios that we do. And so that's uh, number one. So I wouldn't use that uh, thyroid function test to dictate what I would do with a Bethesda 5 nodule. So a Bethesda 5 nodule has got about a 75% chance of cancer. And so those are the nodules, both the Bethesda 5 and 6s, where we will typically go to surgery. For the Bethesda 5, it's to make the diagnosis in a 1.9 centimeter tumor. It's often diagnosis and treatment. Um, and so in a Bethesda uh, 5 nodule, we typically will recommend surgery. And, and Dr. Um, Sickles, do you wish to add anything? I totally agree. Okay. Totally <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> we right team. Okay, thank you. Um, and we have a question uh, actually for um, for actually um, Diana, Ms. Um, Bairden. Um, so um, can a dietitian discuss the importance of being on an LID, low iodine diet, prior to any scans? Yes, absolutely. Um, they can give you the information um, on foods to avoid and those to include um, if you need to restrict um, iodine before a procedure. And what are some of those foods? Can you Are there any that you can identify or they should get the list from the treating healthcare team? But Yeah, you'd want to get the list from the team mm -hmm. um, because it would give you the amount of iodine um, in different foods and um, and then, of course, give you a meal plan and an example um, to follow um, the days prior to the to the procedure. Mm -hmm. so, thank you. Okay, thanks. Um, and we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and this is for Dr. Cracciolo. Will I gain weight if my thyroid is removed? So thyroid hormone regulates the metabolism, and so the side effect, and I don't really want to say side effect, but it is something that we do hear when someone goes on thyroid replacement hormone is is weight gain. And so people that are hypothyroid, independent of thyroid cancer, their first presenting symptom is sometimes weight gain. And what that means is that the thyroid hormone and the thyroid uh, function tests are abnormal. And so yes, weight gain is possible. However, what we typically will do is look at your numbers work with the endocrinologist and get you into a better uh, level of the thyroid hormone that you're taking uh, synthetically with Synthroid. And so possible, yes, but manageable in regulating the thyroid hormone levels that you're taking after your surgery. And Dr. Sikwitz, um, do you want to add anything? Yeah, nothing to add. Fully covered. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, okay, and then another question from one of our online participants. Um, um, so this is a question actually from, for the uh, for uh, Ms. Bearden. I am interested to know what foods should I eat and what food I should stay away from after diagnosis with thyroid cancer. Well. Um Again, like I kind of mentioned earlier, it's all depending on the side effects that you're experiencing. So if you're having difficulty swallowing or any pain, then that would um, potentially mean modifying diet um, a little bit with texture. And um, But in general, 
for most patients, um, they don't present with those symptoms um, like we discussed earlier in the presentation. And we, as um, oncology dietitian would encourage like the American Institute for uh, the American Institute for Cancer Research Guidelines, which would be a plant-based diet where um, three quarters of your plate come from a plant-based food and one third come from a lean protein. Let me see, or one quarter come from a lean protein. And um, bringing in foods that are less processed, uh, more of a whole food approach, meaning a food that is close to harvest as possible. We know that at that point the food has um, a more abundant um, uh, content of antioxidants, phytochemicals, vitamins, and minerals, and eating a variety of colors to inoculate yourself with as many phytonutrients and antioxidants as you can. Um, we discourage juicing and supplementation, where we want you to get your nutrition from whole food. Um, and then also bringing in foods that can help reduce inflammation, such as wild-caught cold-water fish. These include things like salmon, tuna, halibut, sardines. Um, that's um, overall health important to bring into your diet. And, um, of course, being hydrated. Um, is very important, and drinking enough fluid. Um, most patients actually don't drink enough fluid um, for different reasons. Um, maybe they're anxious, they're not, their appetite's decreased, and so oftentimes that falls off kind of the radar. It's important for you to do that. Um, another thing that I like to let patients know is um, with your grains, um, getting the ones that take longer to cook is kind of the easiest way to remember it. Um, rice, um, couscous, quinoa, um, the one that takes about 45 minutes to cook is going to actually have more nutrition in it because most of the nutrients are bound to fiber. And when a food is heavily processed, the fiber is removed because the higher the fiber content, the longer the cooking time. So a lot of the quick cook items like oatmeal that quick cook, go for the ones that take longer to cook. Um, just eating a balanced diet, nourishing yourself, and um, maintaining an overall um, well-balanced lifestyle is, is really what we'd recommend. Awesome. And actually, I did, um, one of our online participants from um, SICA organization, um, the thyroid cancer organization, um, has said that they have an LID recipe book free on their website, and they probably have other types of um, uh, resources for you. So we'll actually also put that, and when you get your evaluation, we'll repeat that resource for all of you, but that's a, a nice resource to know about, um, that um, the Thyroid Cancer Survivors Association does have a, um, a recipe book um, that um, covers LID recipe, and you also, of course, want to go over with your healthcare physician, as Dr. As Ms. Bearden has said. Um, great questions, I must say. Um, so here's another online question. Um, I guess um, I'm going I'm, I'm to ask both our physicians to address it. I don't really know. How does biotin impact the thyroid function test? <laughs> I don't think that there is enough data. I don't think that there is any major impact. On no impact. That. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. All right. Thank you. All right. And that's. Um, and then. Um, and then there's another question. Um, 
So, uh, and for, I'll give this to Dr. Misikowitz. What are the risks of radiation or surgery as treatment for thoracic cavity lymph node metastases? Uh, okay, so both of them, they have kind of, it's a kind of a, I, as I call it, sometimes a different knife that you're going to use it. Um, so obviously, surgical approach obviously is going to include that you need the anesthesia. So there is this extra element that obviously you have to go through, uh, and then obviously, um, many times probably the, the location kind of determines you know which approach is better. Um, so they're kind of similar. So I would say the size, the location, and I'm sure that the, uh, my surgical colleague can comment that this obviously is going to determine if you know uh, surgery would be the preferred option. And again, the element of anesthesia, and especially because sometimes patients they need clearance for the anesthesia uh, because you know cancer may be potentially resectable, but let's say you have some kind of a cardiac problems and you cannot go uh, undergo the anesthesia, then obviously, obviously it's going to eliminate it. SBRT, which is kind of a radiation or stereotactic radiation, is sort of like a sophisticated method that we, you know, the radiation beams go through the tissue and does the similar thing. And I would say the location many times determines, you know, uh, the method that we use. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Carcello, do you wish to add anything as well? No, you know, radiation certainly has um, side effects as well as, as surgery. And what we really look at is where is the location of the lesion and what would be the uh, quality of life impact uh, going, uh, going with either of these treatments. And so bony lesions will often use radiation. I know the question was specifically about thoracic. Um, however, surgery is a very good option for isolated lesions that can be uh, approached with uh, minimally invasive procedures. Excellent. Thank you. And this will be one last telephone question, which will be our last question. Um, so I'm going to um, uh, ask Sonia to um, bring on that participant, the question that they have. Thank you. And our next question comes from Karen G. Your line is now open. Hey, yes. Thank you for taking the call, or my question. Um, would it ever be appropriate for... Um, ultrasound to have diagnosed or had identified nodules and the primary care physician to make an initial referral to an endocrinologist instead of to a surgeon? I mean, why would that ever be a first step? Oh, thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Carcioli, do you want to address that? In a general way. So our, you know, our, yeah, our typical workflow is nodules are identified, ultrasound is done, and then uh, the next step is typically a biopsy. Um, I think there may be endocrinologists that sometimes practice in this arena. Um, however, that's kind of our typical approach, and what I've seen um, in in previous patients, you know, particularly some, there are some endocrinologists that potentially could be doing biopsies, um, but for the, for the most part, the workflow is a nodule is identified, uh, an ultrasound is done, as this is being the gold standard, followed by a needle biopsy, if appropriate, depending on ultrasound characteristics. Excellent. Thank you. Well, there is one light-breaking question. <laughs> Sorry, I said one more, but is diagnosing thyroid cancer different in children? Um, and now, this is a program primarily for adults, but I did, our speakers wanted just to address that question. Is there a pediatric group that would handle uh, pediatric um, thyroid cancers, and if you could address that. Um, so, um, Dr. Carcello, do you want to start? Yeah, so for differentiated thyroid cancer, it's the same uh, that we discussed. So ultrasound, biopsy, diagnosis. 
Now, uh, that, that can also be the same for medullary thyroid cancer. However, in medullary thyroid cancer, there are genetic tests that go along with this. And, and, um, and so that's the difference in medullary thyroid cancer. But in pediatrics, uh, the protocol is the same. Medullary thyroid cancer is a little bit different just from because of the genetic component. And would they see a pediatric team or they would see the same or the third? Well, it depends on if thyroidectomy is, be doing, um, is being done prophylactically for hereditary medullary thyroid cancer. That typically sees a surgeon first. Um, and for pediatric thyroid cancer treated with surgery, those people can usually see either a head and neck surgeon or sometimes a pediatric surgeon. And so uh, those are the two people that manage it. Obviously, the, uh, pe the anatomy is similar, smaller, but these are often managed by pe uh, just head and neck surgeons that also treat adults. And Dr. Sikowitz, in terms of... Um, yeah, so in terms of the um, uh, chemotherapy, so obviously um, they should go to the pediatric oncologist. Um, I would assume that the treatment is very similar um, but obviously the incidence is, you know, drastically different unless we're talking about, you know, hereditary uh, cancer. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has really been an amazing program today. I, we could go on, I guess, quite a bit longer. There are more questions, but we, we really, I do, in, in fairness to everyone on the call, including our, all of the participants and our speakers, um, I want to thank everyone. I want to thank our speakers. Uh, we are kind of all applauding you, but you can't, you know, we can't hear all of the applause from everybody, but we Thank you very much for these outstanding presentations, all of you. We also um, actually um, want to thank our participants for being so involved and asking such really great questions, which really enhanced the program. And um, as we conclude the program, I just want to say that we don't want any one of you to leave this program feeling that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a large community of support, which includes not just cancer care, but the thyroid cancer organizations that I've mentioned up front that you'll be getting more information about at the end of the program, um, and also your healthcare team. We never want to sidestep them. So any of the questions that you might have, your healthcare team is always a good place to go back to. So for those of you who did ask questions, and for those of you who weren't able to, both want to go back to your treating healthcare team with what you've learned today and ask them the question, and perhaps you'll ask the question with a little different slant to it just because you've gotten some information today that might help to inform your question in a different way and also might empower you to ask the question because it's really you ask really great questions, and, of course, your healthcare team knows you the best. Um, also, we don't want anyone, to, again, to leave the call feeling you're alone. You are now part of a very large community of support. And um, and, it's, and a lot of the support is from your healthcare team, but also from all these free organizations out there that can offer you information and support. So I want to thank you all, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day. <laughs>